We are in uh, the middle of a series. Uh, it's, it depends on what you mean by middle. Uh, everyone sees the world differently. Uh, we are in the second week in a five-week series on the book of Job. And we are going to struggle with him. It seems like in today's world, in the place we find ourselves in a time of suffering and struggle and figuring out what things are, it's helpful to have a companion. And that companion, of course, first of all, is God. But to have someone who's actually suffering and struggling and asking all the hard questions, uh, maybe without good answers. Uh, I grew up believing Job had a ton of answers. Uh, I, long before I read it, and then I read it, and there aren't a whole lot of good answers in that book. So if you are approaching Job as the guy of deep patience, you know, and you have heard the phrase, the patience of Job, I'm here to tell you, you need to reframe the book and reread it, all 42 chapters. Uh, because we find a, an interesting person who is struggling. I like to begin my sermon with a personal story about my life because I think it builds a bridge uh, to the text. And for me, today's story has two pieces at two periods in my life. When I was about five years old, one of my favorite things to do in the world was, and maybe a little younger, one of my favorite things to do in the world was to make cookies in the kitchen with my mom. And we made cookies, uh, chocolate chip cookies, I'm sure, because it was one of our favorite cookies to make at that time. So I made chocolate chip cookies with mom, and while we were making it, our hand mixer broke. Now, being raised by the daughter of a Methodist pastor, I knew immediately what we needed to do, pray. We needed to pray over that important mixer and ask God to fix the mixer and fix the problem. So we stopped and we prayed. Now the mixer did not immediately work, but somehow miraculously, because my grandmother didn't want me to be disappointed for praying, sometime later that week, a new mixer, even better, it was not a handheld mixer, it was a stand mixer, appeared in our house, and we could go back to life, and as beautiful as it always was, making chocolate chip cookies. Fast forward to September 2015. We were in the midst of moving out of our old building, the old St. James building, uh, because after all, a church is really the people. We were, out of, we were in a building, it was a different building, 12,000 square feet, New building, 2,300 square feet difference. Uh, but we were moving out into temporary space. And one of the things we were doing was we were move, gonna move a bunch of boxes into our house, into the parsonage. And we had, we had rented a truck and we were ready to go. And this was a Friday afternoon that we had begun moving boxes. And we're, at the house, walking in, Linda's just gotten home from work, and she gets a call from Joshua, our son, who is coming home, he's driving home on the road, and he feels really, really, really bad. And he's feeling really sick, and it's an extreme pain. He's in the process of driving home, and he doesn't know what to do. He's in the middle of back roads in Virginia, 
And so Linda says to him, I hear my wife, I'm not hearing the whole conversation, I just hear my wife say, hang up from me immediately and call 911. Now I knew she was talking to Joshua. <laughs> hang up immediately and call 911 is not something that you want to hear as your plan for the weekend is the simple moving of heavy boxes into your house where you've always wanted to store church goodies. Uh, needless to say, Linda says, we're packing up. We made a few calls. Mark Hayes stepped into the breach and said he would take care of moving things into our house. And Linda and I uh, began, uh, they were taking Josh. The EMTs came, arrived, took him. They were taking him to Charlottesville. You know, and as beautiful as I love Charlottesville, now we had to drive to that place, and it was rush hour on a Friday night. Not current rush hour in the midst of a pandemic, rush hour, rush hour, like it used to be, if you remember what that was. And we were going to Charlottesville, and the whole time I was, you know, wanting God to fix things. I was talking to God. Uh, at one point, the closest thing to fixing things I could do is Linda got in the car, and started driving. It was the F-150. She was driving the F-150. I was sitting in the F-150. She was giving me orders about what she needed me to do, who she needed me to call, what needed to happen. And she was a tad bit, even for Linda, frantic. <laughs> and that is not a usual reality for my wife. Frantic is not, is not her. So I said, pull over immediately. And she said, we have got to get to Charlottesville. I'm I said, no, I need you. You are good at making all these calls. You have a list of things you want me to do. And as fast as they're coming out of your mouth, I can't do them that fast. So let's change places and I'll drive. So I drove in silence to Charlottesville, not knowing what to expect, but asking that God would fix whatever we were going to find there and hoping, trusting that he would. And he didn't. <laughs> uh, the God that I was praying to did not make everything perfect. There was no new mixer waiting for me in Charlottesville in the emergency room when I saw my son. Instead, I saw a man who was heavily breathing, labored, and I was unwilling, I was in denial, I suspect, unwilling to admit that this was as dangerous as my daughter and wife thought Josh might not live. <laughs> I was unwilling to admit that to myself. He was in ketoacidosis because he is a diabetic, a type 1 diabetic. We didn't know that until he was 19 years old. <laughs> uh, and God did not fix that. And I had to begin to figure out over the next several days as we sat with Josh, first in the ER, and then in uh, an essentially intensive care unit, uh, they moved him from Charlottesville. There were no beds in Charlottesville in two hospitals. They moved him to Harrisonburg. We went, followed the ambulance to Air Harrisonburg uh, because he was taken in an ambulance, and we sat with him in his room for the next several, for the whole weekend. That's where we were. We slept, ate, and drank in the same room. And by sleeping, I mean we essentially were in the room. That's pretty much all we had going on. And I still chatted with God, and I still expected God to fix things. 
And when the doctor said, type 1 diabetes, I said, no, I'm sure that you're wrong. Josh is an, an athlete. He's in great shape. How is this even possible? Well, it's come to be true. We recognize it. It only took until Josh was like 23 for me to figure out that I believe that about him. But uh, the truth is, the God that fixed things for a five-year-old didn't fix things for a 50-year-old, 50 50-plus, 50 52. And I had to come to terms with that in terms of who I thought God was and my relationship to God. Now, you'll remember last week, Job lost everything. In the first two chapters of Job, we, we start with a really happy Job. Everything's going great. He's got a really great relationship with God. God's got a relationship with Job. Job's got seven perfect sons and three daughters. And uh, they all hang out together and celebrate birthdays. And he's got a bazillion sheep and cattle and goats and refrigerators and whatever else it is that made him a great guy. And he lost it all. And then he lost his health. And then he sat in the trash heap, scratching himself with broken pieces of pottery. And his three friends came and sat with him for seven days in absolute silence and said nothing. Today the silence breaks. In chapter 3, the silence of Job breaks. And this is how he begins what he has to say. After this, okay, Job opened his mouth, chapter 3, and cursed the day his day, the day of his birth. Job said, let the day perish in which I was born, and the night that said a man-child is conceived, let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, or light shine on it. What's interesting about this third chapter is it ends on the note, and I can find, Job can find no rest. Job walks creation, the creation story backwards. Where God said, let there be light, Job says, let it be dark. And where on the seventh day God created the seventh day, the Sabbath day for rest, Job says, I have no rest. I have no rest. Please uncreate everything. I don't want to be alive. Why do I have to live through this? I have done nothing wrong. My life has been nothing but good. God, you owe me. God, you owe me. I'm righteous. I understand the way things work. The righteous guys get rewards, and the unrighteous guys don't get rewards. They get punishments. I know how this works. I've known that my whole life. That's why I've been a righteous guy. I get good stuff. If I've been unrighteous, I completely understand why everything in my life is coming apart, including all of my family members dying except for my wife, and all of my flocks and everything being either stolen or killed or struck by lightning or you name it, they're gone. I don't understand, but I'm a righteous guy. You owe me. You know why? Because I think the world should be fair. It's supposed to be a tit-for-tat world. I like you, you like me. If you don't like me, I don't like you. It's all about give and take. Come on, God, I've given you. You've got to keep giving me. Why, why, why? Now, maybe you've never been like Job. Maybe your life has never come unglued and you've never looked around in the world and said, 
Why? Why me? Why am I having to live through this? I mean, Job even goes on and says, I wish you'd close mom's womb on the night I was conceived. So I wasn't even conceived. Nothing. Let me be dead. I don't want to do this. Let's fast forward to chapter 4. One of Job's good friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, what a great name, starts to speak up. And this is what he has to say to our friend Job. If one ventures a word with you, will you be offended? You can already tell. You're going to be offended. <laughs> Have you ever had that friend that comes up to you and says, you know, I don't want to offend you, but... Yeah, leaves you right there. Okay. If one ventures a word with you, will you be offended? But who can keep from speaking? Of course I'm going to say something. I'm Eliphaz the Temanite. What else am I here for? See, you've instructed many. You have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have supported those who are stumbling. And you've made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you. You are impatient? It touches you, and you are dismayed? Is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? Think now, who that was ever innocent has perished or been punished? Who that is innocent has ever been perished, uh, punished or perished? Well, there you go. Eliphaz the Temanite might as well be the voice of Job from pre-bad things happening. I mean, let's just be honest. Eliphaz the Temanite might as well be a voice in his head. This is the way Job used to think. I'm good to God. God's good to me. I'm righteous. God owes me. God takes care of me. I'm still righteous, but God's not taking care of me. This is wrong. This is unfair. Now, Eliphaz the Temanite is still living in that world. Apparently, Eliphaz's life is still good. It is always easy when your life is good to tell somebody else what's wrong with theirs. Usually, because your life isn't as good as you like it to be, and it's much easier to make somebody else feel bad so you can feel better. I'm not sure that's Eliphaz's job in this story. I think part of his job is to reflect back the same thing that probably he heard Job say. Maybe when Eliphaz was going through a bad time. Maybe Eliphaz the Temanite, you know, was having a rough time. Job showed up and said, dude, does God ever punish the righteous? Of course not. Now, if you're righteous and innocent, you're always going to get it good. And if you're not, you're going to get it bad. That's how it works. Now, you have to understand, when the book of Job was being written, that was something that they were struggling with, the Hebrew people were struggling with. They were trying to figure out, because they had an understanding, an early understanding of this God-us relationship that was kind of based on, you know, I'll make some sacrifices to you, you'll take care of me. I'll look out for you. I'll do what you tell me. I've got the Ten Commandments written like in my head. I will do those things. You'll do good things for me. But sometimes it doesn't work that way. In fact, for most of us, if you're honest about your life, even in your most righteous moments, bad stuff happened. So what do you do? Well, certainly, 
if you're Job, you have a friend, Eliphaz the Temanite, that shows up and tells you, this must be God's will. How many times have you heard religious people say that to somebody else when the poop hits the proverbial fan? You know, this must be God's will. And there are any number of things that we keep thinking could have been God's will. You know, terrible calamities. Children who get sick. Now, I'm very fortunate. Either none of you said to me when I was... Josh was in the hospital, this must be God's will. Either that or I blocked you out of my memory. And I cannot remember you saying that to me. This must be God's will. Because I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. But it sure seems like a nice, easy, pat answer that we are quick to give each other when anything bad happens. And I need to tell you something that if you're going to read Job along with us right now, you need to be prepared for a different answer than that. Or perhaps you just need to suspend the next four weeks of washing worship at St. James because I'm going to be talking about Job and it's not going to be easy pat answers that make you just feel really good and walk away. When you're suffering, you're suffering. Why does a pandemic hit now? I don't know. Why did it hit twice in the 1400s in England and Europe? Why was there a pandemic in the early 1900s? that killed millions of people around the world, you know, the, the great Spanish flu. Why? Because that's the way life works sometimes, not because God was looking to punish us. Why does a hurricane hit one place and not another? It is not because there are more righteous people in the one spot than there is in the other. Those are nice pat answers if you want, you know, God to be the God of hurricanes. But this is the God of the universe, not the God of hurricanes. And certainly, the God who is still God, even in the midst of a pandemic. Why did I lose my job? Why can't I go out when I want to? Why do I have to wear a mask? Why do I have to care about my neighbor? Why can't they just pull themselves up magically by their bootstraps? All of those kinds of ways of thinking that life is somehow fair are turned upside down by Job. But Eliphaz is the voice in his head, as well as the voice outside his head that says, you know, you must have done something. This is God's will. Now we're not leaving off with that moment, because, you know, we're jumping to chapter 7, when Job speaks up again. Because every once in a while, we must hear again from someone else. So we're skipping ahead to chapter 7. Eliphaz keeps saying essentially the same thing that he just said in those first few, you know, read it if you want to. I, I encourage you to read it, in fact. Now, Job speaks up again in chapter 7. I'm beginning in verse 11. Job says, Therefore I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Am I the sea or the sea dragon that you set a guard over me, God? When I say my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions so that I would choose strangling and death rather than this body. 
Okay. This is Job. Job has taken it to a new level. This is that transition I mentioned to you if you were watching last week that we need to see. For the rest of the book, you're going to notice that Job's friends talk about God. Job has made a transition and is talking to God. And guess what God's big enough to do? Hear whatever you have to say. I'm bitterness. Why did you let me be born? I'm angry. You are the worst God ever. I hate you. Now, I'm not encouraging you to say those things to God. I'm not telling you that that's right or wrong. But you know what? God is used to hearing those kinds of things. God is big enough to hear us say, I am struggling with this. Where are you? I've done everything right. Why does it seem, you know, that my life is wrong? How could love so right turn out to be so wrong? Oh, my God. Why? Where are you? Come on. Come on. Give me back the order I'm used to. Please do something. I don't want to live if I don't get all the trappings. That's what he's saying when he says, I would choose strangling and death rather than this body. These bones. This bones. God doesn't want to be with God. Job doesn't want to be with God. Job wants to be free from God. God wants to die. Now you just have to understand, at the time of this writing, there was no afterlife. There wasn't an afterlife in this, at this place in the Bible. Now, there may have been an afterlife, but in Hebrew understanding, there wasn't one. So the only time you had to put up with God was when you were alive. And then when you were dead, you didn't have to anymore. So Job is like, hey, can we rush this along? I'm done. Clearly, life is not what I thought it was. I want to take my toys home and die. <laughs> or the toys I don't have anymore. I, I, I'm just done. I'm done, God. I'm done. Now, see, most of us live with or hope for the kind of world that we prepare for our children. You know, when Hannah was going to be born, I bought every safety possible item for our house we could. There were plug protectors. I couldn't even take them out of the plug. You know, so if I wanted to plug something in, it was like, I'm sorry, you know, hold it in your hand. That's, you know, we're going to have to go to all manual devices because I can't get those things out. Every corner in the house, every corner of every coffee table, what did it have on it? Little plastic protectors. Didn't want her little face to fall up against it, you know, when she came home. You know, there were, you know, when I grew up, there was a crib and it was cool. But this, I, we built a crib, and as, after we built the crib, there was like 75 feet of uh, protective padding on the inside. You know, Hannah could barely move when she was in there. And by the way, we decided that it was just easier if she slept with us, and that's what she did. So, uh, you know, she, she didn't even sleep in the crib. After we built a protective spot, she never slept there. In fact, she didn't even take her naps in the crib. You know where she took her naps on? Right on her, right here, right here. Across here, a little, it's hard for you to believe when you see Hannah this tall, that she used to sleep here. That's where she slept. It was her favorite place to sleep. Either here or 
cross Linda or on some human being. Any human being would be fine. You know, I'm not even sure we mattered, but the bottom line was we try to make the world a safe place. But if we're going to grow up, we find out some things aren't so safe. They just aren't safe. You know, we, you know, I remember when I first learned to, you know, dad took the training wheels off my bicycle. And I learned to ride the bicycle. I still remember, I was a young man, I don't know, six years old, showing off. I remember it as showing off for a little girl, but who knows, I could have been showing off for myself. Who knows? And I went over a jump. I could barely stay on the bicycle, went over a jump, stuck a stick through my leg, went to the emergency room for a puncture wound, got my first uh, tetanus shot that I remember. Those things are really painful. And stitches, you know, that, that kind of excitement, I remember that. Life is not safe. And if we're going to grow up, we learn that the world is not safe. It's a scary place. It's a scary place. And we've got to figure out a way that we understand that God's there in the scary places with us. Not just fixing everything that's broken in some kind of magical, fix this for me way guy, kind of God. You know, Santa Claus in the sky. My car's broken. Fix it. I need a parking place close because I've got to get in there fast. Fix it. You know, push that other car out of the way. I mean, you're the God of the universe. Certainly you can push a car out of the way. Or put it in that person's mind that's in the grocery store that they've got to leave right now, even though they haven't bought their groceries. Walk outside, get in the car, drive away right now, because James needs a parking place. We want the fixer. We want God the fixer. And part of growing up is trying to deal with God as the great lover of us right the way, where we are, who we are, with us no matter what happens to us. You know, if I were God's son, and by adoption I am, if I were God's son, I, I would expect God would not ask me, even vaguely, to have to be in a limited body, face pain, and perhaps even die because nobody else liked me or liked my message. I would just, you know, can you fix this God? Why do so many people not believe in love? Can't you just snap your fingers, God? Well, freedom, unfortunately, makes us have to live with the consequences of the choices we make sometimes. But even then, sometimes life is not fair. It's messy. And the God of Job is the God who will be with us even then, even when life is messy. God doesn't make it messy. Now, that's the challenge I have with Job sometimes when I read it. God isn't interested in making our lives messy. God is interested in loving us and us loving God back. That's what the whole deal is about. But sometimes hurricanes happen. And sometimes houses collapse. And sometimes... Children turn out to have type 1 diabetes. <laughs> and then you have to ask God, you know, I wanted that safe place. I wanted plug protectors everywhere. I wanted every animal to be tame. Have you ever tried to pet a tiger? You know, like 
One in the wild, for instance. You know, you see one over there. Isn't he cute? He's got all those little stripes. I bet you he'd really love it if I came over and petted him. Fifteen minutes later, minus an arm on the way to the emergency room, you know, you find out maybe not so much. Maybe not so much. The world is not a tame place. It's a real place. And part of life is the invitation for you to be as real as you can be with God, just like Job was in chapter 7. I'm bitter. I'm struggling. God, can you be with me when I'm doing this? The answer, of course, is yes. You can ask for a lot of answers, too. You probably have a lot more good questions than answers. But in the end, the God of Job is a God who wants us to grow up, who wants us to trust even when things are going wrong. To not look for easy answers, but be willing to struggle with the hard ones. And maybe have no answers at all. Why is there suffering in the world at all? Well, that's another sermon. That's not going to fit today. But the bottom line is, there is suffering. There is struggle. And we can't always keep the world safe for ourselves or for anyone. No matter how hard we try. The question is, is our God big enough for us when things go wrong? For us to trust that he never abandons us and never leaves us alone. That in fact, God is suffering with us in the midst of it all. That's what Jesus did, is entered into our suffering. Job is just getting a foretaste of what it's like to suffer. What will happen on the far side? Well, we've got three more weeks of this sermon series. If you want to do some homework in advance of next week, in preparation for where we're going next week, chapter 17, chapter 19, 